ESPN presents Never Tell Me the Odds. An ESPN Star Wars program. The different markings on the different Mandalorians indicate a ton of different things. Carl Weathers is here on the show. Carl, who wins in a fight? Apollo Creed or Din Djarin? Apollo Creed would have to go into training really, really seriously. You take the N1 Starfighter and you stick a Class 1 hyperdrive on him. It's no longer street legal, y'all. The way Moff Gideon looked was so important to who the character was. He basically looked like Vader. This is the way and Gideon must pay. Welcome to Never Tell Me the Odds, an ESPN Star Wars show. We are three guys that work at ESPN and absolutely love Star Wars. We got Din Clinton, Din Ryan, and I'm Din Arda. Boys, how are we? It's... It's uh, the word journey, right? We love it. It's been quite the journey. And now we have a, this chapter's closed and, uh, and di- I've spent a lot of time just sitting and, and digesting it. I'm like the Sarlacc pit, right? It's like, it t- it's going to take me a while to process all of it, but, but I'll get to it eventually. It feels like an entire book is over based on the finale that we saw. Uh, but I want to get your initial impressions of season three of the Mandalorian. Clinton, let's start with you. Well, before this season ever got started, there was some level of controversy as to what was even happening at all. Because if you did not tune in to Boba Fett, well, then you weren't familiar with how they came back to to reunite. And so I I think there's an interesting discussion to be had about the big box Star Wars concept versus now what are the other things that we're doing from Andor to all of the animated stuff, which is a whole other story. A lot of people are upset about it, but the connectivity of these series is what makes the galaxy. This is the fun part. It's not just being able to walk into a movie theater and walk out and think you're the coolest person on earth. The level of depth that we are at right now is fantastic, Ryan. Yeah, and I think that's it. I think it's an adjustment. You know, I say it all the time. I'm Gen 1, Star Wars fan, right? Went and saw New Hope in the theater when I was a kid. And there's an adjustment of how, I mean, I joke about digesting it. But that's the adjustment. The adjustment is the pacing and the adjustment is the amount of it. And to me, you know, I say this all the time, what we have now, and this is, again, as a kid who grew up, we got one movie every three years and then thought we were done after nine years forever, right? And and the reason that the holiday special was a big deal, the original one, was because it's all we had, boys. I mean, it's just, you know, that's how that was. So, so having so much content now and the way it's all interconnected and the way that we're visiting the same places in different timelines is just, it's fascinating to me. And it's not an accident, you know, we're, and, and, and I think that what's cool now is, you can go as deep as you want, or you can go as treetop as you want. And, and, and there's something for everyone. And the Mandalorian is a perfect example of that. If you really want to dive even further into the culture and the legend of, you know, Mandalore and the Mythosaur and, and, and the Darksaber and all these things, it's all right there in the Clone Wars and it's all right there in Rebels and, and it's all right there to, to be found in the books and in the comics and everything. And if you don't want to do that, just watch the show. And, and, and you still have enough of an education on these things. So that's what's fascinating to me. When I was growing up, it was kind of two different groups. You had the, you had the folks who went and saw the movies, and that's fine, and that's whatever. And then you had us. And we're buying the books, and we're buying the comics, and, you know, we're buying whatever we can find and just, you know, just, just eating up everything we can find. And it was hard to find. And now that's all out there for everyone. And, and watching these two worlds are always kind of divided back in the 80s. Watching all of this collide now and become one is um, this. That's pretty cool. Taking taking mainline Star Wars and then taking the, this Mandalore, uh, you know, this legacy and mythology, all that, and mashing it all together now. 
Uh, I just think it's 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 amazing. And the storylines interweave as well. I mean, for much of this season, listen, at the beginning of the series, the Mandalorian definitely referred to Din Djarin. But this this season, you could make the case that that flip flopped throughout the in, throughout the chapters. The Mandalorian at the end of the season does it still refer to Din Djarin, or is it the Mandalorian people as a whole? Is it about Bo-Katan and her ascendancy back to the throne and leading the Mandalorians? Is it about Din Grogu and and Grogu's? journey to become a Mandalorian like there's so many different ways that you can interpret it and that's one thing we love about Star Wars is the fact that there's always Easter eggs to be found there's always different ways to interpret things and that's what I got from the season even though it definitely felt like the end of a chapter it felt like okay the end of a book now we're like it it feels like many loose ends were tied up it felt like closure in many ways but there was still a lot to be explored beyond that I think the depth is one thing, as you mentioned, but there's also something more largely, Brian, you know, when writing a piece, you think, okay, here's mainly what this is about. And for many years, the Star Wars world was about Palpatines, Skywalkers, and various power battles that were existing at the top level of everything. Now, we've got, in Mandalorian, almost a family vibe that we're relating to from a story standpoint, whether it's a relationship between Grogu and Jaren, whether it's a relationship between each you know, warring factor of the Mandalorians, and even elsewhere, you think to yourself, well, this, this is a real world. This is not just robots and lasers. This is not just guys with force and with a force and who don't have it. You know, you, you feel much more a part of it. And I think that, to me, was my big takeaway from this season. It just feels more real than a lot of these other things do in terms of products. And I, I thoroughly have enjoyed this. I mean, to think that, you know, th- these are basically family battles, you know, in, in a lot of ways in terms of who really has the upper hand. We've all got to really do this together. There's not just one shining person that's going to be the savior for everybody. And I think that level has made it a lot more relatable, at least in my opinion. Yeah. And, and what has George Lucas always said and try to remind people of, I mean, I've heard him say it a hundred times over the years, which is, you know, d- despite my love of starships, and we're going to get that in a little bit, but he says it's not about the spaceships. You know, it's about, uh, it, you know, ultimately, you know, the, the, the nine, the original nine, the three trilogies, that's about a family. You know, it's a family drama. And that's what we see here. What, what I love about this kind of new age of on-screen Star Wars is I was always fascinated by, um, like Han Solo. You know, to me, it's the redeemable bad guy. You know, it's the bad guy who suddenly finds himself thrust into having to be the good guy. And, you know, we all know it's deeper than that with Han because Han was really a good guy who wanted to be a bad guy. But but I just always remember Obi-Wan walking Luke into the cantina and looking at, at the time, a very shocking group of, of, of aliens, figures, characters, whatever you want to call them, and, and me consciously thinking, this is where we're going for help, right? And th- this is where we're going to go yeah. to do this? And to me, um, you know, it, it was the story of Han Solo, and it was the story of so many people in the Rebel Alliance and the Resistance, whatever you want to say. It's the story of, of Din. It's the story of Greek Karga. You know, it's the story of these characters. I mean, an IG unit that was designed to be a killing machine and that we saw for a split second, you know, some form of it in Empire Strikes Back. And now it's it's the vehicle in which our beloved Grogu travels around, you know, so and now is the sheriff of the town. So I just to me, it's this to your point is these larger themes 
of the tiny themes that were always in the DNA. And now it's being able to pull those strands out and see, you know, who are these people and what are their story and expand upon, you know, these these things that I was fascinated by, but but you couldn't get enough of back in the day. Shouts to R5. Yeah, right. <laughs> right? right? Hero. Hero. That all Ma- mouse droids, like nothing. Dro- broken droid, right? <laughs> and now he's a hero, right? <laughs> mouse droids, get out of here. He even yeah. sent one down the cliff. It's like, see you later, <laughs> as he's like zooming away. It's amazing. One of my favorite scenes of the whole finale. Here, okay, so let me bring it back to the Mandalorians to your point about, you know, good try, uh, wanting to be bad or bad wanting to be good. The armorer is a perfect example of that. I had no idea whether the armorer was a, was good or evil and it ends up being good. Is someone who's just convicted in their beliefs and, you know, a certain way of thinking, but then the scene where they're at the living waters and they're all together standing beside each other helmet on helmet off and you notice during um uh the the younger Vizla's uh ceremony no longer is there a and i will keep my helmet on during the uh during the recitation wow. right yep. so like yep. things like that where like now you're seeing the mandalorians come together and lighting the great forge and 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 it, it, it was a little confusing at first because the penultimate chapter the spies are there going to be more revealed in the finale? But there, but and, and is Axe going to be a spy? Is the armorer a spy? Is there someone we're not thinking of? But in the end, it's just them banding together and becoming a family and and and, and a faction and finding more Mandalorians out there with Bo-Katan at the helm. I thought that was just a really nice way to to to, to shore things up. Yeah, it's, it's very Rebel Fleetish to me, right? I mean, it you know, when, when it's the, the Imperial Navy or or the, the First Order or whatever, um, you know, it's what you see is you see uniformity. You know, it's the same group of ships moving in the same patterns and using the same attack, you know, modes. Whereas the Rebel Alliance was whatever we can grab. And that's, that's what the Mandalorians had. You know, it was whatever we can grab. I mean, I mean, I mean, she, you know, she said it, you know, the, the, it took me a long time to put together this fleet of ships and they don't all necessarily fit together, but this is what we have. And to me, it was the same thing with, you know, the Mandalorians themselves, which is it's all these different backgrounds and different beliefs. And, and in the end, different species, you know, you got people in the room that don't look like everyone else. And, and, yeah. but, but now we're all Mandalorians. And to me, um, yeah, I just, I love that idea of taking, you, that's what you have to have. If you want to succeed, you have to take different pieces that you're not, maybe you're not comfortable with something with this person. Doesn't matter. You better be on the same team because this is how we're going to succeed. And, and ultimately, I think that's the lesson. Your point there is tremendous. They are a tribe, not a species. Many people learned that during the course of this series, which is, again, a nice piece of discovery if you're not on the deep level. And I think people were looking at that like, oh, right. You know what I mean? Like these people are put together for reasons that have nothing to do with necessarily being genetically of the same makeup. And that to me offers a creativity level from a writing standpoint from Filoni and Favreau and all these guys. Well, now it's wide open. You know what I mean? Because if not everybody has to be born from the same general line, well then, okay, this is more like the real world in terms of how we how we truly operate. That was an eye opener for a lot of people. And I think just a really smart, not that this was to be determined elsewhere, but it just really works smart creatively as a device. It's counter cloning, right? I mean, everything else is about cloning. It's the same ship. Yeah. It's the same uniform. It's the, ultimately it's the same vessel for whatever we want to do. We're cre- we had these, these clones. Now we're trying to create better clones. And meanwhile, the team that's winning, they get their butts kicked a lot. <laughs> <laughs> the team that ultimately bands together 
is this team of real flawed people from different species that are put in a room together because they figure out that's and that's how they have to do it to survive. And they have yeah. this amazing air fight where they destroy the uniform troopers in yeah. many different ways. The armor was literally hitting people with a hammer, okay, <laughs> in the air. Can yeah. you imagine how difficult that would be? It was just fascinating to me. You're right. It's this it is the, the definition of uniformity versus I mean, I go back to I mean, I'm a history nerd, right? I go back to the to the Revolutionary War. You know, did you really think that lining everybody up six wide and walking down the road? Meanwhile, everybody, else, the, the guys you're fighting, the Americans are hiding in the trees and coming out of the right. woods. You know, you really thought you were going to beat that, and that's that's what I felt like when I was watching, you know, this final scene because that's that's how I roll as a nerd. <laughs> Let's talk some highlights. Whether it's the season finale, whether it's another chapter in the season, to me, the lasting image is going to be Grogu saving both Bo-Katan and Din Djarin from the fire. Like, to me, that's such a powerful scene. Like, the, one of the big themes this season was Grogu, uh, the, you know, the kid growing up before our very eyes, even though Grogu is still a kid, right? Still has those tendencies, still acts like a child in many ways, but called upon to do very mature things and life-saving in certain situations. And, and that scene, to me, where... Grogu's using the force and Bo-Katan and Din Djarin are bracing themselves and there's that cocoon like this is the second time this has happened right this happened in season in season one as well but this was more impactful it's like two of the most important characters in the entire franchise uh to me that's a lasting image in Star Wars lore what about for you guys what what were some highlights I'll comment quickly on that and then I'll get to one there was a specific chalk talk about how that unraveled to me that was fascinating, which is that once Grogu figured out, okay, I know how to use my energies. I don't have to blow everybody away. I can just conveniently disperse the weapons the enemies need so that they can't do anything. But when I got to save it for the big one, he's got the battery. That to me was brilliant on another level because he figured out, oh no, I'll just put it out of reach. You're screwed. And I was like, oh, that was a pretty smart adjustment he made there. You know how it is in the pits, right? You don't got to rehaul the engine. Just get a little something back going on the back tire, and then maybe you'll figure out how to win a race. I thought that was fascinating, Brian. Yeah, and by the way, I appreciate the motorsports reference. That was that was that was pretty amazing. You did that for me, and I, and I appreciate it. But no, but it's that idea, right? Every time he used the force in season one, it completely wiped him out because he didn't know right. what he was doing. And with, with a little instruction from Luke, I loved uh, in the in the, the the last chapter of this season when he's in the room, you know, with the guards. And he's frustrating them because what is he doing? He's using the moves that he learned from Luke Skywalker, you know. Yeah. But but then the fighting techniques that we saw, he knew exactly what was going to happen with the Mandalorians because it's constantly studying what's happening. Grogu is, and so to me it was. And I love the fact that everyone had when you had the the three heroes in the room at the end, and and they're fighting. You know, Moff Gideon. Everyone had to. Contribute a different piece to it, you know. Yeah. It, it's this fighting style, and it's this weapon, and it's this use of the force, and all of that fit together, you know. In the end, and it was, uh, I, 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 it was, it was emotional for me. Speaking of emotion, I'll get to my highlight of the season. I think this was one. I mean, it was from the last chapter as well, but you know, it's pretty personal to me. The the entire denouement of how the adoption apprentice situation works was, I, I thought, very touching because. The armor is speaking. Dean is trying to say, I, I need this guy with me at whatever, whatever it may take. And there's a pivotal moment where he says, well, then I'll adopt him, you know, and the armor just sort of pauses. And you're thinking, 
what's going to happen here? You know what I mean? And boom, this is the way. And, and you sort of learn about whatever custody agreements go on in the Mandalorian. I got to tell you, that was pretty touching, man. Like there was something very personal about this relationship has moved from, well, just a guy you found on the street who you had a heart for to, oh no, you are now legal guardian of said person. I, I, to me, that was, it seemed small in the overall context and kind of had to happen, but I, I think it spoke to a lot of people who've lived different lives where Mando stepped up and said, no, no, this is no longer just kind of a side mission that got loose based on me being a bounty honey. This guy's in my family. And for me, it was Bo-Katan, and, and it's a character that, that like, what's fascinating, and I say this all the time about sports or movies or whatever, are watching these things with my family, uh, who aren't as deep dive on this as I am. And, you know, not a lot of people are as deep dive, I think, as we are, but 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 not knowing who Bo-Katan was and not really knowing that storyline and then watching how they reacted to it, but then this very sad character who's literally sitting on a throne, you know, self-banished, the difference is it's not leg thrown over the throne arm like, what's up? It was, you know, it was leg thrown over the throne arm like, I don't know what to do now. And I'm just going to sit here. And, and what was she waiting to do? Just just one day pass away? I mean, we don't know. And so to watch her become her again and to watch her ultimately be, you know, what united, you know, the, the worlds that were divided because in her mind of, of the things that she did. It, it just, again, it's this redeemable thing of, you know, she went down a dark road. I mean, big time dark road. And, and she really didn't want, when we first met her in this series, um, you know, she was not a very likable person. And by the end, it's this redeemable idea of, all right, I'm good again. You know, there's, there's, I have worth again. And to me, that was a really, really fascinating character study. We saw all the Moff Gideon clones. We saw Din Djarin and Din Grogu now destroy all the Moff Gideon clones. We also saw Moff Gideon perish in the fire. My question is, is Moff Gideon really gone? I don't know the answer to that. And I thought the way that, okay, when people die in the galaxy, there's a couple of different ways they go. Sometimes fighting, sometimes sort of giving up, a la Kenobi. And then... There's what happened with Gideon, which is it almost it looked as if he kind of embraced that fire when it finally got up on him and just sort of had his arms out and overtook him. And I was like, does this guy know something we don't know? Is there other are there other side Gideons in the wings, literally, um, that may or may not have made it out of that room? Because that that scene where Grogu and Din are in the, the clone, whatever you want to call it, the clone library, it ends somewhat <laughs> mysteriously. I mean, I guess they start breaking out of their own things but that one clone opened its eyes on its own you know what i mean like that was a jump scare and i haven't look this has not been a lot of jump scares in this series at all i was legitimately like whoa <laughs> naked Giancarlo Esposito, close your eyes you're freaking me out you know? <laughs> so that was that left a lot open for interpretation i think that's a good question art you know depending on what show you're watching animated or, or live action you know it, there's a lot of different timelines that are happening but there are these common themes yep. and you, you know, we, you can, you can kind of see where this is all headed one day, you know, but, but it's this idea of immortality and this idea of, I mean, listen, if we learn nothing else from Palpatine is we learned, you know, you might not be dead ever, you know? Yeah. And, 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 and it's, you know, and, and that idea of that phantom menace, right. That never goes away. That, that's always in the background. And so, 
that that part is um uh, but the, but this this desire to find immortality and this desire to clone yourself and not just clone yourself but clone a better version of yourself right you know it's um as you get older right you, you start thinking about these things in real life which is you know what 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 am I leaving you know what's my legacy and you start thinking about I remember being in Steve Spurrier's office uh, when he his last year as a head football coach at the University of South Carolina and his he had two stacks of books. One stack of books was was football and Sun Tzu, right? And the other stack of books was anti-aging, right? What can you do to slow down the aging <laughs> process? What can you do? And that that's what I you know, that's what I realized. He's about to retire. He's thinking about yeah. how you know how much longer do I have? And so it's a fascinating question and theme to me. But yeah, the, when, uh, it's a really long a really long way of saying Arda that uh, I don't believe that anyone's ever actually dead in this galaxy. What, right, what still in league. Yeah. Exactly. What did Steve Spurrier's cloning library look like? Yeah. Now I will say this: I didn't, I didn't <laughs> dig around Williams Bryce Stadium, but I would say at the swamp down in Florida, there's a pretty good chance that there's. That it would not surprise me at all if there was like a whole. Would you say clone closet? Clone library. Clone library. Yeah. Clone exactly. library. Yeah. You were mentioning it, Clinton. The connectivity of all of these shows, right? The Book of yeah. Boba Fett is almost like season two and a half, at least for a couple of episodes in the Book of Boba Fett. And maybe a lot of the themes that we see here, the stories that we see here might travel into Ahsoka, uh, that series, because it's in the same timeline. Like how important and, and, and what have you noticed about these series being connected and, and, and themes being taken from one to the other? In a larger metaphor that applies to a lot of life across the world in America, but we can just take, I don't know, journalism as one of them. All of these big institutional pillars that determined what everything else was, and I'm referring to episodes four through six and even going back to one through three here. Nowadays in the media world, you know it, Ryan, you go to the football games, SEC, there's 10,000 blogs in the press box. You know what I'm saying? They've all got a voice. They all make up a part of it. And the things that they uncover sometimes become very important to these larger legacy media things because they're operating on a, you know, an integral level that the big places can't get to. And that's how I look at it. I look at it as an expansion of characters, depth, and therefore, most importantly, interest from other people. Not everybody is just an old white guy running around throwing a laser sword around. You know what I'm saying? We've got different complexities, people who look different. Shouts to Rosario Dawson. It is vital to the survival of the Star Wars galaxy as a product for this expansion and this connectivity to be real. And I think that Filoni and Favreau have done a great job. It, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's that, to what I was talking about earlier, is that idea of for so many years, you had to work really hard to do a deep dive. And now you can also, you can work as hard as you, you can go down every internet rabbit hole there is. You can go to every yeah. comic book store and buy every book you have. I mean, I have most of it here right in my office, but now it's readily available. And now there's a canon right now. Now, you know, you know, back in the day, you'd read books and maybe it didn't all add up because these phenomenal writers were writing all the, I remember Splinter in the Mind's Eye was the original Star Wars novel that came out, you know, just a year or two after A New Hope hit the theaters. And I wasn't old enough to even understand what I was reading or looking at, but it was this idea of, oh, we can really, we can expand on this. And when I would watch, I, I, I've said this to you guys before, I remember watching episode three and there's that moment where Padme is looking across Coruscant and Anakin is looking across Coruscant and they're looking toward each other. And, and there's, this is the moment. This is the moment where Anakin's deciding where he's going to go and where the fate of the galaxy is going to go. Cool the face. Yeah. Right. And, and, but, but I remember specifically the kind of haunting 
electronic theme from John Williams. I remember seeing all the traffic and seeing all the vehicles and me thinking, what are these people doing? Right. right. <laughs> you know, what, 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 what's this guy doing? This guy going to work. Is he thinking, what is happening over here to John? You know? And, and so that's what we have now is we have the answers to those questions. And by the way, I cannot believe that I'm just now bringing this up. But Arda, you talk about the great moments. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the Jedi Temple, Ahmad Best. Yeah. What a redemption. What a redemption. It's one of the greatest I, I have rarely in my life have I leapt off the couch and screamed when I when when the doors opened and there he was and I knew exactly who it was. And there's a lot to unpack there. But oh my gosh, I mean, first of all, just an amazing moment. And the answers to one of the biggest questions we had, which was who saved Grogu. But yeah. to see to see Ahmad Best standing there and to see him on the internet owning it and, and now being all these years later, so many people embracing him, that was it. I mean, that that was that that moment right there was that's the one I've watched over and over and over and over again. For his redemption story to come back, I just thought like if you're gonna be doing it at all, this was step one. Yeah. And I thought that it just, you know, that stroke of genius, in my opinion, or in, in Everlove. It was, yeah. And it, just, and it shows that community, that family feeling, right? To give the actor that redemption after the vitriol that he faced for, quite frankly, decades for a character yeah. that he just signed up to play as an actor, right? It was the never other fair. thing, that, yeah, it was never exactly. Fair. Yeah. What I also love about that, though, is that Keller and Beck was used previously in Star Wars. He, Ahmed Best, was the host of a kids television show i think it was called jedi temple challenge and he acted as keller and beck in that show which was created by lucasfilm and so it's almost as if we took that jedi in that show and brought him and canonized him right like made that character canon in star wars which is one of the again it's like another layer to how cool that whole moment is so Yeah. yeah i'm glad you brought that up because it was one of my honorable mentions in the three stars which we'll get to a little bit later on An absolute honor for Clinton, Ryan, and I, Arda, to have a very special guest join us on Never Tell Me the Odds, an ESPN Star Wars program. You know him very well. You've seen him as Grief Karga in the show. He's directed episodes on The Mandalorian as well. Carl Weathers is here on the show. Carl, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Uh, I'm doing really well. Thank you for inviting me. And having a chance to connect with hopefully all of the fans all over the galaxy that are tuning into The Mandalorian and who are Star Wars fans. Let's start with this. I mean, obviously, we've all watched the season finale by now, but I'd love to hear as someone who acted in the series, someone who's directed this season and last season as well. What are some of your memories, some of your highlights from working on this season of The Mandalorian? Wow. Uh, This season was... uh, was filled with so much adventure, I think, in watching the series. If you're a fan of the series and if you're a fan of Star Wars and you, many people know the lore far much better than I. Uh, I mean, you know, they're, they're really avid, I guess, students of Star Wars and all that, that Lucas and now Favreau and Filoni have offered. Um, so for me, it was... Uh, another adventure, so to speak, you know, into that uh, that galaxy of Star Wars uh, memories and recalling. And uh, one of the most memorable for me was Ahmed Best coming back, of course, and 
and how fans have embraced, you know, his resurgence, if you will, and seeing him as the Jedi who actually uh, rescued uh, Grogu and uh, saved Grogu. Uh, Grogu's got a lot of uh, of of male, I guess, uh, admirers and uh, father figures, and some might even say grandfather figures. <laughs> uh, but, you know, there are a lot of men who have felt very protective about Grogu, and there's uh, there's that, uh, that bonding that's gone on, but it's also spread out to, obviously, so many fans, male, female, children, uh, uh, grandparents. Uh, so for me, that's one of the most memorable. And seeing Ahmed wield those lightsabers uh, in which the way in which he did, and and create the escape and uh, on the racer and uh, being chased and and then eventually kind of doing a a, a hard landing there and spilling yeah. out the the I mean it all just worked so beautifully and and kind of in my wheelhouse when it comes to action you know. So there's that, but there's also the uh, adventures, I guess, that that uh, The Mandalorian and uh, uh, Bo-Katan and, uh, 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 and, and, and the young uh, Grogu have had traveling throughout the galaxy and, and uh, being, being uh, threatened constantly by all kinds of bad actors <laughs> out there, including the pirates who come to Navarro. So there's so much. I just think the audiences have had so much to... Uh, to take in and digest and and hopefully enjoy this season. Carl, from an acting standpoint and a characterization standpoint, I've always I talked about this earlier in our show. I'm always fascinated by this idea of, of you know kind of bad guys who become good guys, right? The redeemed. What, what do you mean, bad guys? Yeah, who become- but, but, but I'm getting there, right? But, 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 <laughs> what are you referencing? But but, but Han, Han Solo, right? I mean, I mean Rocky Balboa. You know, he, right. he's cracking skulls one day, and the next day he's he's a world hero. But but Grief Karga, how? What was your headspace as far as this is a guy who was making his way with some some unscrupulous characters, and then you know now he's he he's in charge of a, a group of people. I think Greece's philosophy would be by all means necessary or any means necessary. And if uh, he has a vision and an ambition and wants to get someplace, uh, he will deal with whomever he has to deal with, hopefully maintaining his integrity while doing so. But he is a very Machiavellian kind of character with a bit of an intellect that I think allows him to navigate through some really unsavory situations with some unsavory characters throughout the galaxy. So for me, he is a great archetypical kind of character that I particularly enjoy. And the reason being, you have this arc in not only his story, but you also have this character who has so many different faces that you're not quite sure what he's going to be and who he's going to be. For Carl, what is yes. it like to step yeah. into this galaxy at this stage and oh. all of a sudden be a part of something? So, I mean, you're going from running on the beach with the beady beads to droids <laughs> carrying your robes around. I mean, that's that's quite the arc, sir. What has it been like for you personally at this stage of your life and career? As an artist, it just gives me an opportunity to explore right, to explore landscapes that maybe 
uh, in so-called reality kind of stories, because this is a fantasy and, and Star Wars is a bit of a, of, of, of futuristic, if you will. Uh, uh, um, uh, sci-fi. I mean, it's, yeah. it's so many things, right? But it allows me, the actor, an opportunity to kind of play in a sandbox and paint with paints that I might not get a chance to paint with in in average, <laughs> you know, kind of stories and very familiar kind of stories. So this genre and this particular uh, kind of material just gives me a chance to open, I guess, more of 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 what I have as a, as a human being, what I've experienced, what I've learned, what I've been able to observe. And with good writing, it gives me a chance to play, you know, to play, I guess, more fully. Uh, so it's been just a great opportunity. And on top of that, to play in the world of Star Wars. I mean, yikes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, man, everybody, anybody around the world who's ever watched movies is aware of Star Wars if they haven't specifically drilled down in it. What was the production of this like? Ryan's referred to this before. Is that there used to be a world in which we got a movie every three years, max. And now, so many different series are coming out. There's a lot of character stuff. I mean, it's it's a bit more of a pressure cooker just from a work standpoint. What was that experience like for you as a director and as an actor? Well, first of all, The Mandalorian has run so well. I mean, the production team is is as good as on any projects I've ever worked on. And I don't care what it was or what it cost or where it was, which decade it was. And I'm happy to say now I'm in my fifth decade as a professional in this business. Well, nice. well I've seen a lot and been run over a lot. <laughs> uh, but with, with The Mandalorian, we have such a reliable brain trust, if you will, I've consulted with uh, with John and Dave to make sure you got you know the beats of the scenes and understand what they're what they're chasing you know in in these scenes that and in each of these individual episodes, and then really help the actors give their best performances uh, within that context. So for the director, it's um, it's a combination of craftsmanship artistry, hopefully intelligence, you know, and, and creativity, uh, while being able to collaborate, uh, as an actor, uh, man, I'll tell you, it, 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 it really requires an actor to be focused. It's, it's, it's a serious production. It's not play, you know, despite Grogu's antics. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, we've, we've been fortunate that everybody has really jumped in, uh, dove in really and just tried to do their best man and and look at the you know the end result carl i gotta ask a question because i cover college football and this is an espn podcast you played at san diego state for don Coriel. great uh, don Coriel. right but you you guys went undefeated 1969 it went to the pass won the pasadena bowl did you yes. receive like a ring or a watch or a certificate or a ribbon for winning the pasadena bowl do you, do you have that in the I house somewhere I don't remember receiving anything to be honest. <laughs> oh, but well, that needs to change. Oh, cheap skates? What's going on? You know, yeah, yeah, like, I don't know. 
Well, let me tell you. Calls. Let me tell you this. I I hold that memory dear though because, uh, first of all, playing at San Diego State, uh, alma mater, uh, at a time when my naivete and my ignorance. Uh, if I could look back and go back and do it again, I'd try to do it even better than I did it, right? But I was just existing in a world that I had so much joy in. And so playing ball at San Diego State, being on an athletic scholarship, studying theater, being a theater major, now sounds so ridiculous and far-fetched and like, <laughs> like a movie itself. But then, man, that was my reality. So winning that particular bowl game was fantastic. Uh, I remember us playing uh, Boston, I think. Boston College at that time was what it was called. They had a great, great cornerback, and uh, uh, he was fantastic and went on to play pro ball. And we had on our team uh, Ryan Seip, Dennis Shaw, uh, um, Fred Dreyer, uh, Nate Wright, uh, my roommate, Billy Hayes, uh, so many great players who went on and played in the NFL. And I was one of the lucky guys that I got to be a, a walk-on at the Oakland Raiders and uh, and make it. So who'd have thunk it, right? Uh, just, <laughs> I'm just a lucky guy. Who wins in a fight, Apollo Creed or Din Djarin? Apollo Creed would have to go into training really, really, really seriously. Uh, Din Djarin's got so many weapons, man. Uh, he's got Grogu. Uh, now he's got, jeez, uh, everybody, it seems, on on, on Din's side. Uh, but you know Apollo Creed. He's always got something up his sleeve, right? <laughs> he's always got something up his sleeve. So it'd be a hell of a battle. From from Grief Karga and The Mandalorian, we love you, we love you, we love you. Keep watching. Uh, all of us have a unique spin on Star Wars. All of us have things that we love uh, that are Star Wars adjacent or that can be applied to Star Wars. Uh, Clinton, you are, uh, aside from being one of the best baseball minds out there, you love Thank your you. fashion. You love your threads. You know what's up. So why don't we get to right now a segment we like to call You Got the Shirt. Bring it to us, my friend. For those of you who don't know what You Got the Shirt is, there is a moment when um, Din Djarin runs back into Grogu and Boba and he sees him and he's got the chainmail on because Grogu had to make the choice. Are you going to go the Mando way or are you going to go the Jedi way? And he looks at him and he goes, first of all, what are you doing here? And then he pulls up and goes, oh, my God. You got the shirt. Like of all the things he notices, <laughs> he notices what he's wearing. There's guns blasted everywhere. They're flying down on a speeder trying to save their lives. And he says, you got the shirt. So as a kid, I worked at the um, Star Wars exhibit at the Air and Space Museum. That's where I did my high school community service. If you want to know how, how deep it goes. One of the things they had there was all the original storyboards and all the costumes. And so you could see. Like, you couldn't touch them, but you could see them right there in terms of how they actually put these things together. So that's what I'm coming with. So we're going to start with the Mandalorians in general. Now, there's a couple things to be said about this. Number one, most people's understanding of what Mandalorians dress like looks like Boba Fett. Boba Fett, however, not a Mandalorian, got his armor from Mandalore. One of the things you'll notice is the rangefinder, something that when you get to Mando, Jin, will interchange those... He doesn't have. Why is that important? Because the development of his suit alone is indicative of a lot about the story of the Mandalorians. When you first see him, 
kind of scraggly. He's got a couple pieces of Beskar here and there. The boots are not looking like they've been to, uh, you know, a foot guy anytime recently. And <laughs> he's trying to sort of determine who he is. Now, after he receives the Beskar payment, everything changes. He's now sleeked out. He's got all of the necessary stuff. He's got his different insignias. That development alone of the main character is something that I find fascinating. And it gives us a little look into what we talked about before. The Mandalorians are a tribe, not a species. So when we go to different people, when we go to, let's just say, Bo-Katan, you notice on Bo-Katan's helmet, her eyeslits move up higher, part of the Night Owls. The different markings on the different people, Mandalorians, indicate a ton of different things. And it's namely job related. So if you compare, let's just say, all the Mandalorians were found on the, the planet where they were hiding out, there's a lot of colors. Because previously, Mandalorians liked to be seen. So blue and green and all, all swinging. But Mando, as a bounty hunter, he can't be out here like that. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. you you got to be a little bit more sleek about how you operate. And that's why the slicker best star, it, it's just what you're looking at when you look at those different costumes are people with different jobs. It's basically what that is on many levels. But they personalize them based on their missions. They personalize them based on who they are and where they come from. That's number one. Um, let's see. Now, number two, villains. This is important. And this has to do with Moff Gideon. So if you don't know who Moff Gideon actually is, number one, his helmet looks like a Mandalorian helmet. Let us not forget this. It's got the T-square, all of that. And you're wondering, well, why? and it's got horns, not unlike the armor. And you're wondering, well, hold up. What is this man's connection? Is he a Mandalorian? No. In fact, he was just there, um, you know, posted there as far as part of the Imperial Army before, but he's obviously adopted some level of whatever it is. It's sort of like when colonizers show up and start wearing native garb, and you're like, bro, you're not from here. What are you doing? You know, And so that is an interesting part about who he is because it shows a little bit, again, of the identity. Also, something that I think subconsciously people forget about, but something that made him look far scarier, data pad on the front, a la Darth Vader. That alone makes you look like you are far more serious about your business in terms of how you move about the galaxy. And I thought that he hearkened back. I mean, he basically looked like Vader, let's be honest, but he just had a different helmet. And so those two things to me, again, moving from the Mandalorian side to the dark side, if you will, I I just thought that the way Moff Gideon looked was so important to who the character was. When I first saw the entire Gideon Beskar outfit, the first thing I thought it was Darth Vader just because of the the like the predominant black color. Yeah. But also the horns made me think of Darth Maul. So I thought it was almost like an amalgamation of like right. Darths of the past or something like that. It, it, yeah. it, and it showed that it was an instant indication of evil on some level, which is also why we don't necessarily trust the armor out here in these streets because yeah. she's got horns all over the place. But that could just be a personalization thing. We'll figure that out later. Now, what most struck me about this particular season, and part of the reason why I brought that family tone up again, is that the side missions were out of control this season. I mean, they were all over the place to a certain point where I was like, oh, okay, can we can we get back to what we're doing? But they revealed some things that I thought were very, very fun. Now, Grief Cargo, for example, when we first see him, Bounty Hunters, Guild Guy, Earth Tones, Dark, Cloth Belt, again, Raggedy Boots, you know what I'm saying? And you're thinking to yourself, okay, this is a guy who works out in the dusty roads of the galaxy. <laughs> when he comes back as a high magistrate of Navarro, I mean, the roads are just ostentatious beyond belief. He's got droids 
carrying his daggone cape and his robe. And I'm thinking, well, this man's had a come up. He went to the mall. You know what I mean? <laughs> he yeah. went to the mall. He went to the chest game. He went to the chest totally, game, got some robes. Right. It's totally indicative of how his character has developed to the point that I almost thought it was going to be a safety hazard. He's yeah. out there dealing with the pirates in the streets. I'm like, you can't get to your gun under all of this. Mando has to pop him for him. And so it was an interesting thing, again, about how characters evolve in this series and they come to look different. Now, lastly, and this is the reason why I brought up the, the festive robes, when they make the mission to Plazir, that's one of the nicest places we've ever seen in this entire galaxy amongst everything. And one thing that struck me beyond belief was simply the amount of color we saw amongst regular citizens. I was like, oh, we got pinks, we got greens, we got reds. And I'm not even talking about the clothing. Those are the different liquids they were drinking. You know what I'm saying? There were all sorts of things that were going on. That's the most color we've seen in the series in any form since basically Naboo. When we're talking about live action stuff, I thought that was tremendous. And it showed, reminder, all those guys you were talking about, traffic, some of them go home to happy families. You know what I mean? Some people like their lives and there was no more important example than, of course, Lizzo the Duchess. The box braids, she manifested her role in this, by the way, by dressing as Grogu for Halloween a couple of years ago and basically getting her way into it. And just a great story. The makeup, the robes, Jack Black looked great. Go back and watch that chapter and look at the way people are dressed. You've got rows and rows and rows of humans that have all sorts of outfits that if you ever want to have a Star Wars party, you can get outside of the box on all the typical stuff because the people were unbelievable and those three things i think were really something that uh struck me during the course of this season and i guess over the past three you know what? right i, I mean, love it love yeah. it yeah yeah and just i knew you're going lizzo by the way but just the but just the pop of color is something that we've never seen we saw bits of yeah. it in the indoor we saw bits of it in rise of skywalker when, when they first are, are trying to you know find the dagger and, and they walk into this amazing you know, celebration with all of this color. And it was shocking because it's this world is built on grime. This entire galaxy is built on grime. And so, yeah, that pop of color is uh, is amazing. But yeah, 100%. As soon as Lizzo popped up, I looked at my wife and I go, Clinton Yates is going to break this down. <laughs> is looking at NFL draft footage. This is going to be amazing. Love it. I love it. Love and that's why I love like the weekly adventure format for this season, yeah. right? Because we get to go explore these new worlds and get this, the opportunity to see these different vibrant scenes and clothing that we may not normally see if we're sticking to the main storyline. So that to me, that uh, th- th- I welcome all of that. So it's pretty dope. Well, if you show up to my party dressed like Jack Black with the mustachios craziness, I'm kicking you out. Just so you know, <laughs> <laughs> throw out my outfit now. <laughs> You make a great point about Moff Gideon and Darth Vader, though, is and what I thought about, too, is this is a man who the more we learn about him, the more we understand how immersed he is in the force and in learning about it and both sides of it. But that's why, to me, one of the most underrated moments when Luke Skywalker shows up to save the day and take Grogu with him is the look on Moff Gideon's face. Because he knows who this dude is. The big boys are in town. This is the guy who has taken out two Death Stars. And this is the guy who is, you know, as far as you know, has killed Palpatine, has killed Vader. I mean, he is so immersed. He knows exactly who Luke Skywalker is. And that's why hands went up and, you know, I'm good. 
All right, everybody, time now for Galactic Garage. This is where our very own Ryan McGee nerds out about all things construction, crafts, ships, cars, whatever it may be in the Star Wars universe. I can't think of anybody more appropriate to do a segment like this, especially about Star Wars. McGee, I can't wait to hear this. We have to, if we're going to talk about, listen, there's so many amazing ships, so many amazing vehicles, a lot of which we'd seen in the animated series, a lot of which we'd never seen before. But we have to talk about the N1 Starfighter, the Naboo Starfighter that that was pulled just literally. It was a barn find. I mean, this thing was covered up in, you know, in a docking bay and she pulls the cover off that thing and it's all ratted out. And, you know, it's it literally had animals living in it, you know, just like if you found, you know, an old Dodge Daytona in a barn somewhere, you know, in, in the yes. Carolinas. And so I'm like, well, what are they going to do with this? Oh, they're going to. This this is like a this is like Hot Rod magazine. They're, they're going to trick this thing out. And what was amazing about that star? So here's the thing about the N1, because it's so slick, it looks like a dart. You know, it, it, it to me it's Doug Chang, the the great you know illustrator, and and and, and uh, you know he he comes up with these vehicles. It, it's his to this this is his masterpiece. But then you take this elegant craft that I think people think is nimble and probably fragile. The reality is. This thing's tough. This thing has twin ion engines, like a TIE fighter. It's not quite as fast as a TIE fighter, but it averages about 800, 700 miles an hour. This thing's faster than an X-Wing fighter. And it's about the same size as an X-Wing, and like an X-Wing, it has a class one hyperdrive. So this thing moves. All right, so now you take this very elegant ship, right? You, you take this ship with twin ion engines and a shield generator and a hyperdrive, and listen, they called it officially. She says, she says to Den, she goes, I have a turbonic Venturi power assimilator. No, that's not what that was. I know a Hemi when I see one. I cannot believe this ship. So we know the M1 Starfighter had this kind of yellow paint job, right? But it was chromed out on the front. And all of the larger Naboo ships, which are all built, you know, in the Thede Palace, there's actually a hangar underneath the palace where they build these things. These are hand built. This is like Ferrari. If you buy, a Ford Mustang, you know, a, a, a trick that car, a Camaro, they're amazing, but they're coming off an assembly line. You buy a Ferrari, it is literally a bunch of old Italian dudes in an old house that are hand milling parts. That's what these crafts are from Naboo. And that's why they were so highly coveted. You hear her say to Den, you can't get this. And, you know, you know, the, 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 this is old, you know, uh, this is old level, old school. It's off the grid. And so you take a Hemi. And you cram it into this starship. And oh, by the way, um, you know, you, you put a little spot up there in the back where Grogu can hide out, which is normally, you know, where, where your droid is. That, that right there is for me. That's why it's so fast. So you take a ship faster than an X-Wing, as nimble as a TIE fighter, and you stick a class one hyperdrive on it. For folks who don't know, in hyperdrives, the lower the number, the faster the ship. Class one is as fast as you can have legally. You add the Hemi. It's no longer street legal, y'all. It's like the Millennium Falcon. So no one really knows what class hyperdrive that thing has. And and I love the two fact we're, we're talking about the evolution of characters. Din doesn't need the old ship anymore. Mm -hmm. okay, hold on now. We ain't going to talk bad about my Razor Crest like that. No, no, the Razor, the Razor Crest was amazing. <laughs> but, but, but the Razor Crest was, was essentially a, a, a freighter, right? He's, 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 stacking, uh, he's stacking his bounties like cordwood in the back. And then taking them in. He doesn't need that anymore. His mission has changed. Now it's him and the kid, and they're on the run. 
and they're doing, and now we know, you know, they're going to be taking it. They're not bringing in people, you know, they're hunting down people. They're doing right. So I love the fact that the mission changed, but that thing and chromed out. So the chrome on this, not only does it just look cool, it also serves a purpose because it messes with tracking. If you're flying directly at someone, you know, at 700 miles per hour, it's hard for them to track you and even see you if you're all chromed out. So I get a little excited. I don't know if y'all can tell about the N1 Starfighter. And, uh, but yeah, it's a Ferrari in space and, uh, but it's a Ferrari in space covered in chrome and you cover any car in chrome, it automatically becomes a much cooler car or starship. All right, moving on time now for three stars. So this is a list of uh, the three stars. Uh, I put this together, uh, certainly up for debate, but let's be honest, everyone who watches this will agree unanimously and there will be no debate on social media about this list. <laughs> for those, uh, for those so, who don't know, Art is a hockey guy. This is yeah. what they do at the end of hockey skate. That's right, That's our three stars. Bit. Exactly. Okay. That's the three stars. Uh, I will give one honorable mention that I, I wavered on my list. I'll be honest. Okay. I want to give an honorable mention to start with, and that's Carson Tiva. And here's why. First of all, I think that Carson Tiva got a big glow up this year. All, all of the people on my list got a big glow up this year. And the end of the Mandalorian season three, that last chapter gave me a lot of hope of what adventures we might see between Carson and Din Djarin and Grogu and what they might get up to in the outer room, etc. I, I loved that ending. But also, you can't ask for a better actor than Paul Sun Young Lee. That guy is like a lifelong actor. He's grinded, worked hard. Star Wars, just like us, is his passion, is one of his favorite things in life. And now he gets to be a character in the show. And if you follow him on social media, all he talks about is like being grateful and gratitude to Star Wars and interacting with the Star Wars fan. He's like the actor's people's champion of the Star Wars universe. Number three, Bo-Katan. Bo-Katan is now the ruler of Mandalore. Bo-Katan started completely jaded. My people are divided. I don't know what to do with myself. I don't even have the dark saber. I don't know what anything means anymore. But then all of a sudden, things start to come together. She sees the mythosaur. What will she do with this information? She could have used it nefariously, but instead, she just came out and told the armorer in almost like a show of trust. And the armorer, to, her, to the armorer's credit, came back and said, okay, we're going to use this to unify. And then the Darksaber in the last chapter gets broken. Very easily, might I add. Moff Gideon must have some, like... Can we talk about that real quickly? That <laughs> yeah. was a little bit awkward for me. I was that like, was oh, that's shocking. the gone now? That's what we're doing? That, that was, yeah. that, that, Moff that was, Gideon was that, crushing an empty shocking. can of Coke. That's what happened yeah. there. Yeah. It was like, wow, maybe uh, maybe someone should have done that a long time ago. But, you know, but again, <laughs> maybe it goes, but it goes to... I mean, this dude's... He's mechanized, right? I mean, he, yeah, he's... I guess so. He, he's a, He's a mechanized Darth Vader. He clearly was. You could almost you could hear it when he was yeah. throwing punches. And so right. yeah, it was but that part shocked me. We spent the entire season. Yeah. Yeah. So it was the importance um, of it, the scene with Din passing the dark saber in an elaborate story in a way that yeah. makes sense for Mand- Mandalorian. The whole lore. reason they even believed that Bo Katan should be leading them is because Din admitted that she deserved the dark saber. It was a whole dark, thing. dark saber as a MacGuffin. I did not have that on my, did my, not have my, it. my Mandalorian but, but, being the cool thing about it was that now that the Darksaber, no matter how it got destroyed, is destroyed. Now that that unshackles the whole idea. Now yeah. Bo-Katan can un- truly unite because that was a point right. of contention, truly unite. And so at the end of the season, now you're like, OK, I love the Mandalorian story. Bo-Katan at the helm of that and her history, too. A lot of things we haven't we, we sort of scratched the surface on, and especially in the penultimate chapter. But there's a lot to uncover about Bo-Katan's past and her family, and also how she will lead the Mandalorian. So that's my third star. Star number two, a little off the board, but I loved her presence in the show. Elia Kane. Loved everything Elia Kane did. 
we all know I come from a world uh, like hockey and also pro wrestling and combat sports. As good as you want your good guy to be, you need to have an equally powerful and formidable bad force in order to combat that. And Star Wars has had that in spades. But this season, Elliot K not only furthered storylines, that episode with Penn Pershing, I thought was one of the strongest. And I loved the development of that. Even her with the with the red space popsicle and the little clues that led to her. Even when we first see her on screen for the first time and the way the music changes, like there's so many clues that she is like an M, you know, for the uh, Empire Remnants, Clinton. Also, tremendous trench coat out of her when she's in the <laughs> rain. Oh, yeah. Uh, you don't see a lot of that fashion forward action, non-uniform, on yeah. the streets with the duster. It was great. I know it's a good character as a bad guy when every single time they show up on screen, I get pissed off. You know what yeah. I'm saying? That, oh, yeah. That's the number. I'm like, oh. Yeah. Here we go again. You know what exactly. I mean? and, and Elliot Kane did that for us. And not only that, Elliot Kane still is there. So yeah. that, and, and, and that's the other thing. The reason I put her as my second star is because I want to know what happens next with Elliot Kane. For me, she's my rookie of the year. First star MVP for me, it's by a country mile. It's Din Grogu. Uh, I know that Din Djarin is not on my list. Sometimes they come as a tag team. I totally understand that. But Grogu literally, like I said earlier in the episode, grew leaps and bounds. We saw so much development for Din Grogu throughout this entire season as a sidekick. Then coming together with the Mandalorians to settle internal squabbles, the battle on the ship uh, leading into the final battle. Then we saw Grogu literally save the lives of two of the most important characters in the show and being able to speak and learning like learning as a kid does, but also using that in a way that is beneficial. You were mentioning the, the battle with the Praetorian guards. Grogu made the Praetorian guards look like pedestrian guards. Let's not forget too, that the learning how to speak, just the general concept of verbalization from yeah. Grogu was fantastic. And it led to one of the funniest scenes in the entire series. Grogu is too young to operate heavy machinery. No. What do you mean no? No. Let him try it out in my office. Yes. This is not a good idea. Come on. Yes. 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 On that note, everybody, uh, that does it for Never Tell Me the Odds, an ESPN Star Wars show. Ryan McGee, Clinton Yates, I'm Art Ocal. Uh, we appreciate you watching this show, being here with us, and hopefully this is the first of many episodes uh, that we get to nerd out and talk Star Wars because at the end of the day we love Star Wars just as much as you do watching it and we are looking forward to so many of the new shows that are coming up uh, any final thoughts let's just go around the horn uh, as we close out the episode Clint can't wait for Ahsoka it's going to be one of the most groundbreaking series as far as what from a story standpoint from a character standpoint from an execution standpoint looking forward to it well, and again, you know, just thankful mm. um, in, in 1980 and up up in the attic of the house, making it look like Hoth with with, with you know with, with sleeping blankets and all this stuff. And and I want to tell that kid that in the span of 18 months, he's getting an Obi Wan series, uh, an Ahsoka Tano, even though he knew who that is yet a series, and he's getting animated series, and now he's got a slate of movies coming out. I want to go to that kid right there and go, dude, you are not even going to believe what you're going to have uh, as an adult. So that's uh, that. That's just thankful is what I would want that's for. Great. Yeah. You know, as Gen 1ers, as ones that watched the original trilogy and fell in love with Star Wars, I truly believe that the Mandalorian did that 
for a whole new generation of Star Wars fans. And it's really cool to kind of tie the bow there and to reignite or even just further our love for Star Wars and look forward to all of these series that hopefully we will be along with you on that journey. So on that note, thank you so much for watching. We'll catch you next time.